Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. Today, we're joined by Kara Kabasa. She's a customer success executive and senior leader. She gives a serious straight talk about what works and what doesn't in customer success. And she's seen it all from B2B to B2C, SaaS, and advertising agencies. She tells us all about the real cost and the downstream effects of bad revenue and poor choices that we make in the business. It's no one's fault, but it is our shared responsibility if we want to build bigger, better, fast-growing businesses. Thanks for joining us. We're here today with Kara Kabasa. She is a customer success executive, and she has been at both B2B and B2C startups. So we're super excited to have her. Welcome, Kara. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. I've listened to the episodes and I know kind of the work you're doing with companies and I'm just super excited to be here today. So thank you so much. Oh, well, you're so sweet. Thank you. We are super (laughs) excited to dive into customer success because as you and I have discussed before, I feel like it's an undervalued function, which is ironic because it's probably pulling more weight than it needs to because of other choices we're making in go-to-market. So I'm actually really excited to to dive into this. And on that note, maybe we we just will. Um, you yeah. have worked at a whole bunch of different companies. So I was just curious to know, was there anything that was particularly um, surprising in that journey to you? Yeah, to be perfectly honest, what a crap show. So many large companies as well as small are in terms of go to market. I remember making the transition from, I started in-house in marketing and went over to ad agencies for a few years and then switched to customer success and tech. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, if ad agencies acted like this, like no one would have a job. Like it was wild to me just wild. So yeah, I was, and and honestly, I was think I was more surprised because the smaller companies, right? If you're like series A, series B, you don't really like have the ability to like not totally have it together. But these companies that have much more funding that are much bigger tend to actually have it less together. So for me, like going from that series A to like a series D, was I was like mind blown. <laughs> That's actually fascinating. What do you think is going on there? Is it lack of process or are there, you know, is it why is that happening? So I think with the process, it's twofold. I think sometimes you get to these certain companies that are past the series A or B, sometimes even C. So then these companies want to bring in these leaders that maybe have the experience from Like you bring in someone that has maybe like an Adobe on their resume or like a Salesforce. But the great I say the great thing, but like by great, I mean hilarious thing is oftentimes those people have never actually had to do work. Right. So then you like have these leaders who are like VPs or who know nothing, who just are like, well, this is what the process should be. Get gain sight, check a box. Are you doing a QBR every quarter? Check a box. They don't actually know what value is to the customers. They just have these check boxes. And that isn't what it's about. Because at the end of the day, like, yes, SaaS is different from an ad agency, but regardless, most SaaS companies sell services. You and I know this. Yes. Most tech products 
are not in a place where they can be self-serve. And so they have to sell services to get any kind of value. And the thing is, even though it's a SaaS company, clients still view that you're paying for it. Whether it's a software or a service, and oftentimes it's both, they're going to expect ad agency level service. Right. And tech companies just aren't prepared for that on the account side or on the services professional side of things. Do you think then that that process needs to be in place sooner in the life cycle of a company? Or is it that the people that are being recruited in because they're coming from big companies? And as you're saying, like they don't necessarily have that um, practical, like on the ground experience, or is it a mix? I honestly think it's a mix. I think if you're hiring those, you know, VPs that just have a big name on their resume, then you really need to hire strong directors, strong managers, strong senior managers who have come up the ranks and done it for sure. I also think that a lot of this is a root issue, right? And so it's like things are junkified at the root, almost from when a deal closes, shit is already off the rails. Most of the time, you and I know this. You're confirming like, so many of my like theories of the case. But yeah, tell us yeah. tell us more about that from a perspective of like, if we're diagnosing this, where do you think it is going off the rails with an eye towards how could we do this differently? Yeah, I think it's going off the rails in sales, to be perfectly honest, from the get-go. All of our sales friends are like probably nodding. I don't think they would necessarily yeah. disagree. So I think one of the things I've learned is, you know, if you're hiring someone to be an AE in your sales team and they've switched, they have a, they're at a different company every year. Hey, recruiters, giving you a special tip right now, that means they didn't make their quota. So they're probably not good. So you probably don't want to hire them. But aside from that, a lot of times, like especially if it's a more technical product, not even more technical, if it's, I'd say if, if it's a product where someone who's been in marketing for two or three years needs help, this is where things go awry, right? And so it's like the sales people oftentimes aren't technical at all, which shouldn't be a problem because they always get a, a consultant, solutions consultant, someone technical to help. But the thing is, they're oftentimes new at the company and don't know the product because they don't work with customers once they've bought it. So even though they have a technical counterpart, they aren't aware of things. And so you're just kind of trying to push the deal over and kind of promise anything and everything to the client. And then things get lost in translation. You know, they're not taking great notes. There's not a lot of great documentation. No one's kind of checking the contract. The contracts are maybe a little bit too vague. And so oftentimes what we're seeing is within three to six months, there's a misscoping, sometimes even sooner than the three months. And so clients start off upset. So I think what really could be done is either like really training the SCs and having SCs is a technical product, spend time with account management, with customer success, with support to know what the issues are. I remember, for example, the last company I was with, I remember it was a customer I was working with directly and they were expanding and I was super excited, a retail customer. And I loved this customer, great client to work with. And I really liked the sales guy. He was really nice, pretty new. And they had wanted something, um, it was like a NetSuite connector. And we had said, sales had said, oh yeah, we have an API. And I remember being like, I know nothing like on the technical front. And even I know we don't have that. And I remember like raising it, right? Multiple times. Right. And it was like, oh, like, no, it's fine. It's fine. 
Sure enough, they sign three months into implementation. They were like, wait, what do you mean you have that? And then it's a cluster and things like that happen all the time. And it's such an easy way, just like having a paying a little bit more of attention, doing a little bit of a deeper dive on that handoff and giving time to the account teams, to the services team to like kind of do their own discovery. And of course, clients aren't going to love that because they're like, well, we just spent three months, six months in your sales cycle. We told you what we want to do. And as annoying as that is, so far, that's the only way I found to solve for that disconnect that so often happens between, you know, in pre-sale to post-sale. You also feel like pre and post-sale should be better integrated because this was Absolutely. something I was going to ask you about anyway. But I, I sometimes wonder about like the silos between sales and CS in general and whether that does or doesn't make sense. Yeah. So tell us what you think about that. Absolutely. I know with a lot of the companies I've been at, they've had horrible sales to success handoffs and where you just learn nothing, where you ask the AE like, hey, why did this? One of the questions should always be like, why did this customer purchase? And it's like some ridiculous generic answer that makes no sense. And like the sales team doesn't know why they bought, you know? Wow. So I think, yeah. And so there needs to be kind of someone really poking holes in that. And if saying like, hey, we don't have the information we need up front, then whether it's customer success or the, a salesperson, an implementation person, whoever knows what info they need, maybe it's a combination of all three, like a value prop conversation, then probably customer success should step in as well. But then there needs to be a conversation off the bat. And oftentimes companies and managers don't want to take responsibility. I hate to say that, but it's so much better to take responsibility up front and get things right, like off the bat, because ultimately that will save your team's such huge problems down the line, as well as ultimately the client, like you'll have more respect. They'll have more respect for you. They may be annoyed you're asking some of the same questions, but ultimately it will get a better outcome for both the client and the company. You think it's also that having more hybrid roles is part of it, that the seller should also plan to own the account going forward, which I know that, you know, there's going to be people out there that are um, AEs that are like, I really don't want to be involved post close. And maybe there are people in CS who are like, I don't want to, you know, be the the hunter or whatever. But I wonder, I, I have worked in one org where there were hybrid uh, reps and I actually thought it worked really well. And the, the feedback that we got from um, customers was really positive too, because they felt like their person was going to be there for the long haul and that the service level was higher than if we had done a handoff sooner. Yeah. I definitely think I've been in at companies where AEs do stay involved and there is customer success as well. But the thing I've seen happen oftentimes is if you're signing, especially two or three year deals, the AE will then fall off and then, oh, maybe come back for renewal based on how their quarter is looking to hit their quota. And if it's a big enough expansion. And so I sometimes feel like that can be unfair as you're leading CS teams for CSMs who's put in all this work. And then, oh, the AE comes in and gets, even though the CSM did all the work. Right. And so I think it's really a hard balance. I do think if there is a strategic seven figure account, it a thousand percent makes sense to have the AE involved but then you have to get buy-in from the AE too. And then you also have to adjust their quota to be focused more on expansion, not net new business. 
So I think you can't hire an AE and expect them to do that work without there being some type of comp adjustment. I do think in an ideal world, there would be better collaboration in a longer time before, because like you said, oftentimes you have that kickoff call, the AE is gone. Right, right. That's more common. And so I think there is a world where there is a longer transition period, even if they're not going to stay on, but where there is a longer transition period. And if you do need them, if there is information missing, they are responsible for getting that info because ultimately they got paid on the deal. I'm also very passionate about this. I think you are too. What I hear you saying is that the comp plans are also where both the problems and the potential solutions live and that Mm -hmm. we need that alignment before we send people out into the wilderness to like figure out these deals and service these customers. A thousand percent. Like again, my last company, it was like the AE should be pulled in if it's, if there's going to be an expansion within a year of signing the contract, not all AEs wanted to. And then it was no, just kidding you guys are responsible for this. And it was like, okay. And then it was like, oh, just kidding. This AE, they didn't hit their quota. So they're going to try to muscle in on all your expansion deals that are in Salesforce. Right. And so I just think it's about swim lanes, boundaries. And honestly, like, I know you and I have talked about this, like we aren't carrying cancer. This isn't like super challenging. It just requires like a little bit of foresight and insight into what our customers struggle with. Right. And being honest about it too. And being honest about it. Yeah. And then to your point, looking at comp plans and like sticking to those hard and fast rules. And if someone can't hack it, whether it's an AE or someone on a CS team, then maybe they're not the right fit for the job. Good example or good examples of comp plans where you think we could emulate those? I haven't seen examples of great ones. I will say- (laughs) Room for improvement. Okay, no. Yeah, (laughs) I I will say that I think at one company I was at a a few companies ago, the AEs were pretty much not involved on most accounts unless they were seven figure accounts. And the CS team got to run with everything. And that was very smooth. I was running the CS team at that point. And I felt like that was very seamless. Oh, that's interesting. So because it was more independent, it was actually more efficient. Because some tech companies now are, have this role, which I think is like hilarious. Can I say that? You can say anything you want. I love podcasts. I love a podcast. <laughs> um, Me too. They have this role called renewals manager. That is a new one, actually. I have not seen that. It's the dumbest thing ever. I remember some a company actually reached out to me to interview for it. And I was like, no. Absolutely not. What What's the job spec? Is it, it's just... So they just work on re- renewal. At the same rate. Like basically you had this yeah. package. We just want you to take that again. Well, yeah. Or That doesn't make expan- sense either. No, no. Or if there's an expansion or upsell. And I'm like, no, you just let the account team, the CS team or the account management team take that. Because they had that role at the company I was previously talking about, but like I wouldn't let my team use them. I was like, they're not worth the hassle. And of course, my team had the greatest expansion on enterprise team at 45%. So like it, the, the metrics speak for themselves because it's like you can't bring in someone that doesn't know the client, doesn't know their business, doesn't know the value they've been getting, doesn't know all the nuances, and then send them in to negotiate. It's why would anyone think that is a good idea? It's a terrible idea. This is what I love about you, though, is because you're so passionate about this and you have the data and the success rate to back it up. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, you've told me some amazing stories that I already really like, but I think they could be inspiring to other folks because like you're 
crushing expansion and upsell at a time where other people are, you know, dealing with tragedies of cancellation. So will you tell mm-hmm. us a little about like what you're doing that you think works really well? Yeah, I think oftentimes clients, again, and, and I said this in the beginning, any type of anything they purchase, whether it is vendor, SaaS company, or an ad, or they're working with an ad agency, they expect that same level of service. Yes. And so a lot of times product most places isn't where it needs to be and it's probably not going to get there. So what does that mean? That means you have to have great account people and great services, people that can get the product to work. And so something that I really focus on in my own when I've been in IC, when I've run teams, is really building a strong relationship with the client and prioritizing that above all else. Also like making sure they feel heard, like you need to know their goals. And because something I've heard a lot at my last company was, you know, we'd have these meetings that were like the biggest waste of time, these like renewal meetings. And I was like, can I just run these? Like, this isn't how we do it. And I remember the VP would get on the line and we'd have the CCO on and like the CFO and some other C person, I forget now, but the VP would be like, like some account, like some account person would talk and they'd be like, you could tell they'd be like sweating and nervous because it was like a red account and like they were going to churn. And I don't mean to laugh, but then the VP would come on and be like, well, we've known it was going to churn for a year. So it's fine. It's fine. Wow. And I remember getting so annoyed and I'd be like, we're all good with it. Like, no. And then I would get like, all why the are we good accounts. with it? Right. Right. And then I would get all the right accounts and they'd be like, oh, you haven't lost one. Yeah. And I'm like, well, wow. Right. Like, because, and so what I do is you really have to think about what value is. And a lot of times what I see happen is CSMs, account managers, they'll go in the tool, say, and they look at it and say, oh, they're using the tool for the clients get, you know, they're doing paid media with our data or they're getting this metric. They're, they're in the tool, they're using it. But the thing is, it doesn't matter what we deem as valuable. So like tech people need to take their own egos out of it. It's not about us because we think they're getting value out of this, for example, paid media campaign, that doesn't mean they give a shit about it. That might not be their metric at all. And it's just, they don't think to ask the customer what's actually important. And if a customer gives you a ridiculous goal, like we wanna increase revenue, of course you do. But what does that look like? It is our job to then dive into what does that look like? What does that mean? And if they don't know, give tell them, tell them what they don't know and agree to a very specific, concrete, quantitative and qualitative metric, something that you can always measure to get there. And that's what I do. I love that. And I'm also just nodding aggressively over here because I I also love you're saying something that I really see in our work and pricing in particular, but I think it ties back to absolutely everything, product, marketing, sales. And that is the fact that the customer always defines value. We never do. And I think a lot of people confuse benefits and value, you know, like what I think it's going to enable for you versus like, do you care enough to pay me for it? Like, which is such a different question. It's such a different question. And the other thing is so many companies, which I don't even know how this is possible. Sometimes I think like I should start my own company because you You probably should. It's just out here. And I'm like, what are these? How who gives this person money? Like, I don't understand. But so many companies, which blows my mind, don't have a way to tie back ROI, right? Like incremental revenue, which blows my mind. So it's like you're you expect me as an, a CSM or a, you know account manager, whatever, 
to go and ask for a 200 grand upsell and we can't quantify the ROI, what is product, what that should be the first thing product should be worth. Every new feature or everything you're thinking of developing that will help or solve a customer issue, how do you measure that? And if you don't know or can't answer it, then that's not it. Blocker to being able to identify ROI. I'm like, honestly, not computing. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> There's like so many things. If we can't get certain data we need from a client, like if it's like a data platform and you're working with their ad agencies, like, and their ad agencies are like slow to give you info or they don't want to share it. Sometimes it's like that type of blocker. Sometimes it's literally just, we can't measure it. It's like when everyone in the ad agency world, remember when everyone was like trying to like pay a Kim Kardashian, like $900,000 to do one social media post, but then no one was attributing, like initially when influencers like started, you couldn't figure out how to track purchases. Right. And it like brands were just so stupid and like giving these people so much money. Right. And it's like, okay, now we know how to track that. So it's kind of like that same thing. Like you're not going to get those seven figure deals and those huge expansion numbers if you cannot directly tie back to ROI. To that end, what does it take to get those seven figure deals? Because those are obviously the holy grail to the economics of a lot of companies. How do you think about that? What are your recommendations there? Yeah. So definitely I think of it in terms of a partnership, like an actual partnership, like how is this going to benefit you? How is this going to benefit me? Because I will go to bat within my own company for you. I will fight all the idiots running professional services. I will fight the demons in implementation who don't know what they're doing. But I need to know that this is going to be worth it for me too. And know that like this is a thousand percent going to be worth it for you. And so I approach it with that type of relationship dynamic but also like at that point, you really need to learn your client's business as well as they know their business. And sometimes de- depending on the client, that's easy. Sometimes it's really hard. <laughs> Do you think that same onus is on sales too? And it, because my sense is that the best sellers that I have seen, they take that upon themselves too. Absolutely. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yep. Which is a mindset. I hope it's a mindset you can teach, but it seems like it's a it's a perspective. I don't I don't think it is a mindset oh, interesting. you can teach. I think it's just about someone's drive to succeed on their own, like their own proactiveness. And to be perfectly honest, there are some salespeople who can get those up to, you know, five, six hundred thousand dollar deals and they maybe don't know the product very well, or they're not, you know, they don't necessarily know the industry super well but they're great at building that relationship and building that trust. And that is just as important. And that's the same thing for CS. Like you you need clients to have trust in you because ultimately, like oftentimes I have overcome some with my own teams, with myself, some crazy product issues, some crazy issues with services teams, other members, even C-suite that clients have hated. But like I've gotten the big expansion because of my relationship. So relationship isn't the end all be all, but relationships do and can solve a lot of issues. Do you think better relationship management can be taught then? Do you think people can get better at that? No. I I will only- So we need to hire better. 
Yeah, I think I only hire, I will not hire people that only have a tech background for tech, for like CSM or account management roles. I want them to have ad agency experience. Oh, interesting, because they understand the service side. Yeah, yeah. because for me, it's like I want people, if you're hiring for relationship roles or roles where there is some type of like client service involved, I want the best of the best. And oftentimes those people do come from agencies. It's a really interesting insight because I think that um, you hear so much about the preferences of a company when it comes to, you know, the, the pedigree of the sales team. And I don't think people talk, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone really talk about like, what do you really, what does it take to be a great CSM? What is that background? So that's really interesting. Yeah. Someone, I'm really lucky. They took a chance on me, but I had, I remember saying like, cause I had worked with CSMs at the ad agency I was at, like I was responsible for vendor, the, the vendors we hired for our clients as well. And so I, w- I worked with, I think, three or four different CSMs from different companies at the time. And I just remember thinking, God, this job is so easy, like compared to what I was like, they're responsible for only a few accounts. They do like one thing. It's like the same thing, like after ad agency would be so easy. And I remember that's why I wanted to get onto it. So it was right after I got myself sick. Right. But But yeah, I think CSMs, like, I don't want to make it sound like a walk in the park because it's not. But but I do think if you come with certain experience, especially in the relationship management and really understanding what clients want, you have a huge leg up already because it's, it's it's, it's not just answering emails and putting together a deck. It is thinking for and with clients. That's how you would define like a a top high performing CSM team. Yeah. Thinking for and with the clients. I like that. Because oftentimes clients are so busy. They have so much going on, like priorities outside of you, projects outside of you, that if you can be a great partner to your client and if they don't know the goal or like they don't know like, hey, I want to increase revenue, but like I just haven't thought about how or like what really that looks like, like that's where great CS team step in and you help craft that journey to success with the client. What about in the um in the instances where a company has taken on customers that we know are a bad fit, right? I'd call them bad revenue. Like that's yeah, that's how I define it. And we're kind of going through it because we we in you know, we're hoping that in the future it's gonna pan out, but everyone kind of knows like that's just not the case. How do you think a company can identify if that is what is happening or if in fact something's going on with the CSM team or it, you know, it is actually the product? Like how how would you diagnose and triage that as a leader? Yeah. So that is a great question. There are some customers that are never going to be a good fit with certain products. And that is just a fact regardless of CS or product. For example, if you have, let's just say a retail brand and, you know, when you guys started out, you know, they were a legacy customer, for example, they're paying $65,000 a year. You know, fast forward two or three years, you've gotten some new product updates, you're doing more, you've gotten bigger clients, your average contract value is now $200,000. You are hitting metrics for that client that hit the, you know, the 65K client. They have goals, you know what they are, and you're hitting them. 
and they want to do more, but they're unwilling to pay for it. That is a bad fit. Now that is where you say, okay, we can't keep investing in you and you have to make the decision to churn or not. The other scenario is, and this actually happens quite a bit. And this happened a lot at my, my last company where you have these middle tier, what I, I would call middle tier size contracts, anywhere from 250 to 600,000 a year. And the clients are using the tool. They are responsive. They are joining calls, but there is a disconnect with their happiness. So if you look at their Salesforce adoption card, oh, it's green. If you look at the health scorecard, it's red. And so it's, what do you do with that? And that often is the case of the services team, for example, like a client being dissatisfied with services or implementation, not CS, because services team is overburdened. They're not giving the client what they promised, what they were promised. And so I think that is when, when you have those scenarios where it's maybe an adoption is green, any kind of place where there's that level of discrepancy where one is green, one is red, one's yellow, one's red. I think that's when you look at internal factors and that's when you have to like raise feedback. And so something that's really hard on CS and that I've always found really difficult for myself, my teams has been finding a level of greatness in services or implementation, sometimes both that matches the level of service CS provides. And it's really hard to match that oftentimes because a lot of times, again, you're hiring these services people, a strategist, a marketing consultant from other tech companies or from in-house places. They don't have the experience to service clients because they were the ones getting serviced. You know, what's the solution to that? I think you have to be really clear. I think when you start out with services, like, again, like, a lot of product, either you have to make the investment in product and say, hey, we really do want a self-serve product. This is where our money is going in engineering. Because if you have a great product, that's kind of all you need. But no company is there yet. And I don't know if that is going to be part of the path. When you don't have a great product, which is most of the companies, that's when you really need to have, you can have the best CS team and they can save a lot of accounts but they're always going to be fighting a battle with services. So you really have to hire a strong services team and also know your capacity. The other issue is so many SaaS companies don't know the model. Like I remember like one company I was at, I remember when I, I found this out after I had signed on, but the model for premium services was unlimited. Oh, well. And I remember losing my mind. How, what? I just signed an offer letter. Who thought that was a good idea? Like what? And no, you can, you have to be really conscious, even if it's not something clients are going to like, you have to know what you can and cannot do. Because if you don't, you're just going to drive yourself into a hole and get out of a never ending loop, which is what I've seen at one of the last companies that I was at, they lost over a million dollars because of that, had to write it off, which is insane because they just couldn't get their offerings together. And it also sounds like it's um, it's being unrealistic with internal expectations too. A thousand percent. It's like if you can only give clients 10 service hours a month, that's okay. But then you either need the product needs to be augmented for that and you need to start work on that immediately or you need to scale 
your services team or stop selling services for a little bit until and hold. And no, no one wants to hear that because you know, then it's, well, how do you, you know, customers that aren't the right fit that we know shouldn't be on our platform, we can't churn them because sales isn't bringing in enough new business. So then again, that falls to the CS team to save this customer that we know isn't the right fit, which oftentimes we do and can do while we wait for sales to bring in the right fit at the right price. This is a perfect lead in to something I wanted to talk to you about, which is we both know that LTV is a crucial, uh, sometimes ignored part of the ideal SaaS business model. And Mm -hmm. I think in both of our experiences, many companies focus exclusively on acquisition and they kind of assume that the uh, renewals and retention will just like take care of themselves. And again, I I think I think genuinely companies believe they're building good products and that the product is going to be able to drive that. But as you point out, I think I fully agree with you should assume it's not the case. Like if you're the minority, that's amazing. But all of that to say, what do you think is that right balance then? between like net new customers, NRR, and I've got some some other things we can talk about there too, but like, what does that look like? Like, what should we be aiming for? I think you should be aiming for as close to 100% renewal every quarter. But then that means you should be getting the right customers from the start, right? Because otherwise we're holding on to customers that we don't want. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is. But until sales can kind of figure it out, you unfortunately are going to probably have to hold on to some customers you don't want. And until you can work the right fit, because I think that LTV, like holding on to customers, honestly, especially beyond the three-year mark is really hard. Right. And you lose so much time, like all the investment, because typically over that three-year life cycle, there's going to be some gives because the product isn't functioning. The client's unhappy. The build time was too long. Or the roadmap changed or something. The roadmap changed. They hate services. All these things happen that are outside of CS's control, but that we have to deal with. And so ultimately, you're giving these things to hope that they are going to stay and then expand. So imagine giving these, these things and trying to get them to stay. And then because you still can't get it together two or three years later, you're still losing them. And so for me, the focus should really be on like what is within CS control, which is retention and expansion. And I think there does need to be a bigger emphasis placed on that because as we've seen, especially as economies change, if you are sticky with your clients and providing value, they will stay and pay. It's a lot harder. Like I know now, like again, the last company I was at, they weren't able to hit their quotas for sales. And so with the economy, it's like you don't have as much control over that. But if you are providing value to your current client base, that is like stable and safe and sustainable for sure. So I would love to see people place, you know, it seems like in my experience, oftentimes that retention and expansion is an afterthought of when sales doesn't hit their number. I think you're right. And that can't be the case for a sustainable long-term business if the goal is to a profitable business that will IPO. That can't be the case. They have to switch up how they think on that for sure. So what should the revenue responsibility be then between sales and CS in your view? Ideal state. I would say that CS is responsible for everything except net new business. And keep that clarity throughout. So if we yeah. did a bad job with annual planning and folks are missing quota, like don't come back to CS to 
kind of mur- muddy up that process. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. What do you also think, um, there's one related question, like when companies are thinking about renewals and I, another area that I, I think people don't look at enough is kind of expansion, cross-sell, et cetera, as they're growing. And again, you've worked with a lot of later stage companies. How do you think about that? you have any recommendations there? In terms of like expansion? Yeah. Expansion, cross-sell, like upsell. Yeah. Because I think people I think people get confused between these. And to me, I like to orient it around again, like maximum value to the customer. But obviously yeah. I'm not, you know, naive. There are business priorities in there too. How do you think about it? Yeah. I always have an eye towards expansion, not just renewal. You want to grow in counts. You want to get them using other things. And th- sometimes the only thing that is a hindrance is the SaaS company you're at. So for example, they may not have any more products. Right. Right. And then you're looking at, okay, well, data. Is it a company where you pay for the amount of data you're bringing in? How much is your projected growth? Let's cost that out. Oh, you're having trouble? Your analytics person left. Or, oh, like you're like, this is an issue. Let's argument with professional services on our side. Always thinking about expansion. Also always thinking about deals in terms of not just expansion in terms of dollars, but expansion in terms of press releases, webinars, podcasts, case studies, press, those kinds of things. So there are different things you can do, even if, for example, you're at a SaaS company that doesn't have many products, speaker engagement, those kinds of things. I love that. I think that's a really creative way to think about it. And I also like this coming from you as a CS leader, because I think a lot of times this is an afterthought, even among marketing teams, instead of the on the front end, like think about this as like a portfolio and um, at different times and different customers, like what can we actually do that benefits them too, right? Like yeah. it can't just be about us as the company. Right. And a lot of times I've found that you have marketing people who, when you're sending out new contracts, it's like, oh, we're going to write just in this clause, they have to do a case study. Right. Right. I say that a lot. And that's not the best way to approach it because the clients almost always say no. You need to build that trust with them first. And then nine times out of 10, if they like their CSM or their account person, they're going to do it anyway. So it's just thinking through just uh, like, I don't even know what to call it. I guess just like basic human being principles. And relationship management, right? It's like, yeah. you're asking me to like write just a case like study for you yeah, before you did anything for me. Yeah, <laughs> right, I, I, think, right. I think that's totally fair. I think that's yeah. totally fair. You know, I also think too that customer success is, and you're alluding to this, but I think customer success is a great partner in really thinking through the optimal business model too, because you are looking at it from this bigger perspective. Yeah, because we see all the disasters. Like I I remember there was one place I just remember telling the leadership, like you have to fix the root cause. Like, and then sure enough, this was the company that had to write off the $1.2 million. And I was just like, you guys, like this is craziness because they don't see, they don't want to see, they want to be nice internally. Oh, like everything's fine. And it's like, no. Because CS and account people see it from all sides. We see what we hear and know why the client is upset once they've come in from sales. We see and hear how they're upset when the build is too slow, when they don't like a team member, when services isn't responding to their requests within their SLA. We know it all. So we see where things are breaking down. So I really feel like the best model would be any type of feedback loop but a feedback loop that incorporates CS and then is managed 
by CS, a CS leader, instead of a product leader or an engineer lead or the head of services, because the reality is nine times out of 10 wouldn't be in those problems if those leaders were doing their jobs, I hate to say. So leave it to CS and things will get done as long as you have a good CS leader. I love that. I think that's actually really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it like that. Because a lot of times problems are created not even by ICs per se, because like, ICs only can do what their management let them lets them do or doesn't correct. So oftentimes, whatever issues are, it's actually a management issue. Sometimes it's at the C level. Sometimes it's at the VP level. Sometimes it's you know it varies across companies, but oftentimes the reason why those problems are there, like for example, the one point two million dollar write off was from the head of implementation at one company. So it's like you have to like who was, you know, who's still working there. Like, so you have to figure out if what the root is and then be willing to address it. So if the CS team sets up that insights structure, mm-hmm. how do you think it can also feed marketing, sales, et cetera? Because this is something that I'm I'm constantly surprised that we don't do as much like customer and market research. And even on the product side, I see pretty limited discovery and it's it's usually tied to a specific feature and kind of like our assumption of how we might solve the problem. It's not big picture. It's rarely like jobs to be done or any other big picture framework. So is there, do you have any advice or recommendations around how that might be set up? I think you need to do regular VOC, voice of customer meetings. Yep. I think you need to have the CS team getting regular feedback written, not just from a CS person's note, directly from the client. The CS team member can even recap and get the client sign off an email, present that at a meeting. I think that needs to happen regularly, but across the board with marketing. What isn't working? Well, these reference rates, you always are asking us for referenceable customers, for gardener surveys, whatever. Customers don't want to do that because they don't like us. So let's start with fixing that issue. And how do we do that? I think it's honestly having a CS leader involved in that's how CS leaders should be spending their time. Not telling their team to make sure uh, you check the QBR box in Salesforce. No, but like solving problems, doing things that actually matter. I remember once I had a boss that at the end of every team meeting, he would say, can everyone please make sure your executive business reviews and quarterly business reviews are on the EBR calendar for me and the CCO. And I remember at one meeting I laughed which I don't recommend doing that. And then I just remember being like, well, how about we get them to value first? Like what, like, what is everyone doing? So confused. What is your, um? what's your top <laughs> advice? I for- love that you're trying not to laugh. I know. I have a, my face only shows like every emotion as I'm having it. I don't have any sort of poker face. It's a real problem for me in my life. Me too. <laughs> what is your um, top advice to CEOs? Listen to customer success. They see a lot. They know a lot. And also don't be afraid to fix the root problem. I know it can seem like probably scary, frightening to like shake up something maybe from top to bottom. But a lot of times the issues that are happening have a root and they're not just going to get better by firing one person or making one adjustment. You have to revisit the structure like holistically. Like think about it how you would like your health, right? Like if your emotions and stress can impact like physical ailments, 
you have to look at everything one by one. What is that thing that people like to do with the elimination diet, that crazy thing? Think about it like that. Pretend it's gluten or something. I don't know. But like you have to look at holistically the business and where things are breaking down because oftentimes it's repetitive. I couldn't agree more. Being willing to fix the root, even if it seems hard and like you're like starting from scratch. Ultimately, this the better client relationships start, the better the LTV will be. And so if you consistently have clients in the three to six to nine month mark that are unhappy, that's a huge root issue. And that's where you need to focus your efforts. That is such a great insight. And this has been such a huge uh, conversation. You have given so much advice, so many great. Have I? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) So here's my last question after all this awesome advice you've shared with us. What do you think that high performance companies do differently from average performers? They hired the best people, the hungriest people. And that doesn't necessarily mean the people that went to Harvard, the people with 10 years of experience in this exact thing. It's that grit. Hire the people with grit. That's awesome. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Every I, I only want to work with gritty people. I feel the same way. You want you want people that are bought into the mission and are hard workers yeah. and they're if they um, if they get stymied, they're going to solve their own problems or at least come to you with like reasonable yeah. solutions. Like, yeah, I agree with that. And no one that uses more than two buzzwords per sentence. That's a hard no as well. It's hard not to laugh about that one. I know. I'm just trying to make you laugh today, which I deeply appreciate. Thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this. We will have to have you back. Thank yes. you for being so generous. This was so fun. I loved every second of it. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a new show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.